Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I don't know a white person in America who speaks more authentically and honestly about the issue of race than Mitch Landrew, the former mayor of New Orleans. I've had two conversations with Mayor Landrew, the first of which was in 2017. And I thought as we reach into the vault of the best of the Axe Files, this is one that is particularly timely. Here's that conversation. Mitch Landrew, it's good to see you. I was thinking on my way down here that I think the first time I saw you was when I came down here maybe 25 years ago or something. That's I don't right. Know, your, your sister was running for state treasurer, and I came down to talk to her about that race and uh, pitching, selling my wares as a consultant. <laughs> I remember that. And, and part of the deal was that I had to meet the family, I had to meet your folks, and had to meet you. Uh, you remember me, my mom and dad? I do, yeah. And I think they told me what they've told others. I don't know how Mary felt about it. Saying, now that guy's really, <laughs> really the politician. Mary never liked that. In the family. She never liked that. She went further <laughs> you know, than I ever did. But, but what was clear was that um, politics was not something you picked up at school. This was something that was in your blood, that was in your house probably from the time you could ever yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I was born in 1960 and in the year that I was born, as you remember President Kennedy was elected. Yes. My mom and dad had uh been married then about 5 years. Uh they had already had four children and they subsequently went Parenthetically, on to have nine. we should say you come from a Catholic family. Yes, a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> but my mom, you know they're very interesting because my mom and dad both went to Loyola in New Orleans. My father uh, grew up on a street called Adams Street in a house that was about 14 feet wide and about 18 feet deep. He grew up in the storeroom. His mother was a store owner. His daddy had a third grade education and worked for the public service for the city. He was the only kid in his generation to go to college. He had one brother. And between he and his brother, they were both married once, you know, and they had uh, 19 children. (laughs) How about that? And so my mother and my father who went to Loyola together, my mother actually was thinking about um, becoming a nun, and she was in the convent. She was studying. And my father had gone through law school on a JAG Corps scholarship, and um, my mother had other ideas, you know, and decided that she wanted to be a nun. They decided that, you know, she wouldn't, and uh, and they got married. And right after they got married, my father was deployed to the Pentagon. And my older sister, Mary, who subsequently became a United States senator, was born on Glebe Road in the shadow of the Pentagon. No kidding. So a a couple of short years later, uh, my father had come back home, started a law practice, and uh, run for the legislature on a ticket um, with who was then a very popular mayor, Chet Morrison, who ran for governor that year and lost to Jimmy Davis. 
And my father found himself in a legislative session when I was two months old, actually, fighting uh, Jimmy Davis about segregation in public schools. And he was one of two legislators to vote against the segregation package in 1960. And that was what I was born into. This is is so interesting to me because he was obviously white. Moon Landry, your dad. Yeah. Uh, He's a young white kid from the South. He didn't have two nickels to rub together. He wasn't a big shot. He was. He got elected because he knew, quite frankly, who the assessor was in the neighborhood that he grew up in. And back then, with ward politics, you're from Chicago. Yeah, you know I've what heard this about is like. this. Yeah. <laughs> but back in the day in New Orleans, you could tell about Chicago, but it was all ward politics. And the yeah. ward bosses were the uh, property tax assessors who had the ability at the time to raise a decrease people's yeah. property tax assessments and consequently leverage Made that power. Influential. Yeah, well, he leveraged that power with people who were going to be state legislators. And, and they mayors. saw something in him. Somehow they did. And, uh, you know, he, he ran, and he was only 29 years old. And as I said, he was married. He had four kids. He was just starting a corner law practice that was on top of what they called the kitty store, where they used to sell dresses for little kids. But why did he run, and why did he, uh, why did he pick up the cause of... Of, you know, uh, it's a really interesting question because I've talked to him about this. He, uh, when he got to law school on his first day, he met a young, another young guy whose name was Norman Francis, and they became best friends on that first day. So they were young law school students. Norman Francis was the second African-American to graduate from Loyola Law School. Now, Norman Francis, people will now know, has gone on to become the president of Xavier University and the longest-serving university president in America and was given the Medal of Honor by... Uh, uh, President Bush and led the recovery effort for Katrina. He was my father's best friend in law school. And when my father and mother and Norman and Blanche just basically kind of grew up together, they had children together, that kind of formed my father's consciousness on race uh, and realized that, you know, it was just an unjust practice. And he was a young Southerner that was enlightened by his relationship with Norman Francis and Blanche and all their kids all of whom are still our best friends today. So we kind of all grew up together. But on that day, I asked my father. I had never, my father's told me a lot of stories many times, as you, as you can imagine. But one story that he not, not, did not tell me until recently was that on the day in 1960 that he voted against the governor's package, that he was confronted in the elevator that night by Leander Perez, who was a great racist segregationist sheriff, uh, and a guy named Willie Rannick, who was a racist Klan congressman. And they put a finger in his chest and said, you're dead. You won't survive physically or politically. And that must have kind of scared him. But that's kind of what he was born into the fire. And so from that moment forward, he just kind of was committed to making sure that he was just going to do the right thing for his friend Norman and all the other folks. And that's kind of how we got locked into it. And that's how we were. That was the environment that we were raised in. That's quite a conversation when you're 29, 30 years old. You've got a bunch of young kids. You're just starting out in life. Yeah. I can imagine that he was really afraid, but he was he was convicted because did he. he share, uh, I wonder if he shared that uh, conversation with your mom. I'm sure he did, you know. But in, in the environment that we grew up in, that has been his course his entire life, and and uh, in all the conversations that we've ever had, he never really seemed to waver that much. And by the way, Leanna Press happened to be wrong. I mean, not only was he was he not dead politically, he went on to become the. You know, mayor of the city of New Orleans, and of course a cabinet secretary, and do great things in his life. He uh, he went from the legislature to the city council, uh, in, actually in the parlance of in, in sort of the the um, custom of Chicago, that would be considered a promotion. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, that could be here too, because you know the city of New Orleans is a, is bigger 
politically than a state legislative district. Now, if you're living, if you represent a county or you represent a rural parish and you're the legislator, you have a bunch of mayors that are really smaller than you. But right. in a city, city it's council big. members are bigger and the mayor is um, a, the, the, probably the most prominent political position. I remember position. one of the uh, aldermen who uh, happened to be a ward committeeman in Chicago was mentioned as a potential candidate for Congress, and he was appalled by it. He said, Congress? <laughs> Why would I want to go there? Exactly. And, uh, I mean, it actually was considered a dangerous thing for a, a, a ward committeeman uh, to go to Congress because you never knew what the people back home were doing. Correct. Uh, so, uh, Well, there's I, no question that city council members in big cities, particularly in New Orleans, are very close to the ground. Uh, and they're very powerful. And mayors are generally more powerful than, you know, uh, county executives or, or et cetera. And, you know, you, you've seen this in Chicago. I mean, you you grew up in New Orleans. It was very much like that. It was like Boston. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, Los Angeles. It was certainly like New York in that regard. And there were strong ward bosses back well, in the part day. Part of the reason Chicago and Boston were like that is because uh, of the nature of the cities. And actually the parishes tended to – people talked about – I know parishes have a different, uh, a, a secular meaning as well as a, 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 a religious meaning. Uh, but uh, people were used to being organized by parish. Uh, it, it, it sort of lent to that. Let, let me ask you about Catholicism for a second. How much did uh, JFK's election mean to your folks? Oh, it meant a lot. I mean, my mother and father were both raised as devout Catholics. As I said, you know, there are nine children in our family. Um, my mother and father were raised, again, by the Jesuits. So my father went to Jesuit high school. My mother went to Ursuline Academy and was um, very heavily influenced by the Ursuline nuns. Both of them, in the time that they were in their formative years, were really influenced by social activism Mm -hmm. and by the Jesuits. A guy named Father Toomey. Then there was another guy named Bill Nelson. A lot of the Jesuits down here were really on the forefront of social justice and civil rights and that stuff. So my parents were, uh, you know, Vatican II Catholics, um, very progressive-leaning, very socially organized. Pope John and the Pope John XXIII. Uh, and they were heavily influenced by that our entire life. So all of us were uh, – the boys were altar boys, you know, at St. Matthias Parish Church. Uh, we were all members of CYO. You know, all of us went through the same thing that every other Catholic in the country goes through in terms of, you know, First Communion and Confirmation and – uh, all of those rituals that are so special to, you know, those of us that are Catholics. And then, you know, as w- throughout the years, I can't think of a time when there was really a discussion about what we were doing in politics without there being a moral component to it that was heavily influenced by the education that we got in the respective schools. Now, all of my brothers and sisters and I, all nine of us, went to Catholic grammar schools, Catholic high schools, and uh, some of us, Catholic. I went to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., which yes. is the papal institution uh, of the country. So it's had a very heavy influence. And when John Kennedy was elected, of course, he was the first Catholic. And that was a big deal to them and very mm-hmm. inspiring. And he also became, over time, uh, <clears throat> the sort of leading proponent for civil rights. Uh, kind of it w- wasn't clear at the beginning where that was all going. And, and But he and Robert Kennedy became... Yeah, you know, and made them made themselves not terribly popular in parts of the South. Well, I think that's still true today. Yeah, (laughs) you can still catch a whooping, you know, for for that. But there there is, you know, this whole idea of the New South. When you think back over it, you think about what's uh, what happened in Atlanta and what happened in Alabama and then Mississippi. 
there are other uh, other white elected officials. My dad, William Winter, of course, Jimmy Carter, Bill mm-hmm. Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, even as early as uh, as forward as 1988, there were three Southern governors. There was Bill Clinton, there was Ray Mabus, and Buddy Romer, all of whom were from the South, but Ivy League educated that had come back home, and everybody kind of knew one of them was going to be the president. It actually turned out to be President Clinton, but he wrote a, a piece uh, in a document called Halfway Home and a Long Way to Go on behalf of the Southern Growth Policies Board that talked about this concept of the New South and what that really looked like. And, of course, we've been struggling to really understand what that thing really means, part of the Old South, part of the New South, how much of it is race, how much of it is economics, how does the South really rise above and use its natural resources as an intellectual capital, become the leader of the nation? An argument with, with Governor Bill Richardson from time to time is whether the West has ascended or whether the South was ascended. I think the West is right now. Um, at some point in time, the South will find its footing. Mm-hmm. From a standpoint of uh, party allegiance, though, that was a kind of pivotal moment. I mean, that was when the South – you point out, you're right, that these these young Democratic governors were yeah. able to – uh, win and and overcome this, but in terms of national elections, yeah, I think that's right. You know, pr- um, it turns out that President Johnson was prescient mm-hmm. when he said, "Yeah, we just passed it, but we might have just lost the South," mm-hmm. and that, that that has played itself out over a long period of time. And now, <clears throat> both my sister Mary and I got elected statewide innumerable times. I think Mary four times. I got elected twice as lieutenant governor. We don't have any statewide elected officials that are Democrats today. So that pendulum has swung. It will swing back. It'll take time, but it will definitely swing back. But a lot of that is because of race. Uh, it's not all because of race, but it's all because of, I mean, it is, it is a lot because of it. Your father, when he got to the city council, uh, led a, a fight to remove the Confederate flag from the he city sure council did. chambers. He, uh, he, he pushed for a, uh, a human relations uh, committee for the city when he got to be Mayor, he fought for desegregation of public facilities. He uh, vastly increased the number of African Americans in city government, including mm-hmm. his top aide. He showed his top, chief administrative officer yeah. of the city, the guy that ran. I mean, the, basically the city manager yeah. uh, and the first department heads. My father was, you know, during that election. It was an interesting election. It was 1969. Uh, there were four or five really qualified people in that race. My father wound up winning at the last really in the last day. It was one of those neck-and-neck things. And he beat a wonderful guy named Jimmy Fitzmorris, who went on to become the lieutenant governor of the state and really a mentor of mine later on. And also in that race was a guy named Billy Gust, who then subsequently went on to become the attorney general of the state of Louisiana. So the three of them actually kind of led the state through a very uh, difficult time. At that time, though, uh, the the population of African-Americans in the city had been increasing. um, And they completely supported my father, and he would not have gotten elected without the support of the African-American community. And my father spoke very forcefully about making sure that diversity was a strength, not a weakness, that everybody was included. He clearly saw the historic trajectory and what was necessary for the country, and he was courageous enough to take that stand, and, and he was elected as a result of it, and then delivered pretty aggressively on the promises. Still today, people remember that, who were upset with the direction of the city, and they say, your dad ruined the city. You know, because he hired African Americans. You, I, I, I hear that from time to time. And, and then they and say you're a chip off the old block. They absolutely. They say, just like your daddy, I hated him, and I hate you too. <laughs> so you still see hear some of that. So I had Nancy Pelosi on uh, this podcast some time ago, and I asked her. Her father, as you know, was yeah, the sure. mayor of Baltimore, 
and she grew up. She's as you really grew up. a mayor at heart. Oh, she. I know is. she always one day wants to be mayor or something. She. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, I think highly of mayors. You know, I've sure, worked on many, many mayors races, and I, uh, I, I believe mayors are the best politicians there are because you can't run and hide when you're a mayor, and everything you do is visible. And you can see where you've succeeded and you can see where you've failed and so can everybody else. And they're right there to tell you. Uh, but I asked her what she learned from her dad and she didn't hesitate. She said, I learned how to count. <laughs> she said, I, 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 we always knew how many votes we needed Absolutely. and we always knew that a okay was not a yes and a nod of the head wasn't Ooh, a yes. I tell my guys that all the time. When you talk to the city council and you ask them, are they for you or against you? Unless they tell you, I am absolutely for you. Under all conditions, at all times, that's not a yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's funny that you mentioned it because I know when you work for President Obama, as a mayor, I had the occasion to visit the White House many times, and of course, you you're struck by the awe and the splendor yeah. and the power of that office. I was every day when I worked there. Yeah, of course. But what was really striking to me was how I could be in the White House at one o'clock, and then all of a sudden on the ground in the lower ninth ward at eight o'clock that night in New Orleans, and how close it. It, it in time was, but how distant it was to speak policy in Washington and what it looked like when it hit the ground. Yeah. Now, mayors, they, they're, the, they're, they're the most unique politicians, uniquely situated politicians to actually see this. Senators and congressmen don't see it. Governors really don't see it, where the words that are spoken at the highest levels of government, whether on the executive branch or on the um, legislative branch, what they really look like when they get on the ground. So just this morning I was on uh, another radio show, and they were asking me about the health care bill, and they said, what impact is it going to have on the clinic? And they named the clinic that I had enunciated in a letter to one of our senators. And I said, you know, that's really important because senators and congressmen really yeah, have to understand because really mayors see this. Yeah. So when people talk to us about health care, for example, one of the weird things that comes into my mind is wall time. And people say, well, what, I don't even know what that means. And I said, I'll tell you what it means. It means that my ambulances that we pay for and my emergency medical services first responders who go out and respond to citizens who call that need help or when there's a shooting on the street or where there's a kid that is suffocating i said when they go pick up that child or that citizen and they bring them to the emergency room if that emergency room is crowded and they can't drop that person off they have to sit there while the person waits on the wall and if they have to sit there for 25 minutes or 50 minutes or two hours, all of a sudden, they can't go care for it. So if right. what Congress is doing is going to fill up the emergency rooms. It's going to impact our ability to deal with public safety. Now, only a mayor kind of processes information that specifically that quickly, which is why we've said to Congress, talk to us. Really kind of engage us in a bipartisan way, along with the governors, of course, but listen to the field generals on the ground that are doing this work so that we can confect something that actually makes Sense. And you're, of course, chairman of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. I am. I'm, I'm the president of that organization, which, right. as you know, is an organization that um, has 1,400 cities that are a part of it, bipartisan with Democrats and Republicans. And you know this because mayors govern in real time and in reality. Mm-hmm. We don't govern philosophy. We don't govern in theory, which is why we just tend to be much more practical about wh- whatever the answer is. Let's kind of get at it. You know, figure it out and then see what it looks like when it gets on the ground. Let me ask you, I, I don't want to leave your uh, childhood too quickly. Here. Sure, me either. I'd like to go back to it <laughs> if I could. You, uh, uh, what, what did you learn about politics other than how to count? What did you learn about politics from growing up around it and watching your dad who was a masterful politician? You know, it was a really – it's a great question because my mother and father, as I said, they had – there were nine of us kids <clears> – <throat> 
we always had dinner every night at home. And my father, who wanted to be as present as he could, and he was present a lot. He was a great dad. Instead of going out to dinner with people that he needed to see, he would bring them home. So uh, literally on a fairly regular basis, we had governors and senators and, you know, really special people that just came to our house. And my dad said, if you want to see me, you just got to come eat with my kids. And we want the kind of household where my dad said, you got to shut up at the table and listen to the adults talk. I mean, it was a scramble. I mean, in every way that you can when you have nine kids and a limited amount of food. And so we got a really good, healthy dose of what of what um, good, respectful, healthy debate looked like because my father encouraged us in those conversations. But listen, there are a couple of big themes that that stretch out to me. My father was like, work hard, be fair and be honest. Those are the three things that that come across all the time whatever it is you're going to do if you're fair if you're just if you're honest everything else is going to work itself out and of course what he never had to say and my mother never had to say just because they lived it every day was serve other people i mean literally almost every choice if it was serving other people or serving yourself making money or or doing something that helped other people it was always reaching out it, my house was always open it was always inclusive if you walk around the city with me right now half the people we're going to run into are going to say hey man i played ball with you in your backyard because that's just kind of what it was like. And my mother never turned anybody away from my house. And those kinds of lessons that we learned have informed, you know, my sense of what policies look like, which is why you hear me always say it. Diversity is a strength. Inclusion makes us better, not worse. Reaching out to other people rather than pushing them away is something that makes us really special as a country. And it turns out that those life lessons turned out to be pretty good lessons for politics as well. Got to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Mayor Mitch Landrieu. So I have to ask you about this. Uh, I want to get back to some of these weightier uh, issues, but um, I note that you were into theater, that you were into musical theater, that you actually thought that was the career that you wanted to uh, pursue? I actually drove my mother crazy because I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, I wanted to win Wimbledon because I was a pretty good tennis player when I was a kid. But I remember uh, in seventh grade, our school got a new nun. Her name was Sister Jane, and she decided to do a Christmas cantata or a, or a, or a concert. And we tried out. It turns that I had a voice. And I, so she said, you can, you can sing. And then my mother and father, for some strange reason, I don't know why this happened, how I got to go to see this. I went and saw Oliver at the movie theater back in, this had to be in the early 70s. And I said, that's what I want to do. And when I went to uh, high school, it turns out that we had really one of the best theater departments in the South and a great producer named Sonny Borey. And I got into doing theater. I actually became a professional actor when I was 16. I got my actor's equity card because it was a professional uh, playhouse down the street from where I live, incidentally, where they had these, these uh, professional road shows that came in. And strangely enough, when I, when I was thinking about going to college, I wanted to uh, find a school where I could do politics because I love that. Um, and theater and play tennis. And it turns out the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. had a bad enough tennis team for me to get on, <laughs> but had a really good theater department and a great political science department. Now, you won't be surprised, or you will, but Norm Ornstein was my oh, mentor right? professor, uh-huh. and my RA at Catholic University was Terry McAuliffe, no who kidding. is the governor now, as you know, and Tom Donilon, 
who was the president's subsequent president's <laughs> national security advisor, was also at Catholic University. Marty O'Malley was a couple years behind me, uh, and Ed Gillespie was there uh-huh, yeah, at the I time knew, as well. I knew now, that Ed was there. Yeah. That was many, many me, and and you know we saw we knew each other over time. But at that school, I really wanted to do theater. That's what I wanted to do professionally. My father, who watched me perform, said, "You know, son, you might." you know, want to have a, something to fall back on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you go to law school and, you know, see how that goes, if you, after you get a degree and after you can, you know, support yourself, if you want to go back and do professional work, you can do it, but you really ought to be thoughtful about, you probably know. good advice. Well, I, I guess, I mean, I've, I've seen some people that have gone on and do great things, but he probably, you know, gave me good advice. And what happened was I met the woman that I was going to marry my wife at law school on the first day that I was there because she's a lawyer as well. And then we got married and have five children, and, you know, the rest is history. I I, I have to tell you this story, though I don't want to make you feel bad about the choices that you made, (laughs) but uh, there's a political uh, consultant in in New York named Luis Miranda, and we did a race together there in 2001. He was telling me about his son who really wanted to make it in theater. He was teaching, but uh, he didn't know whether he could make a living in theater, just like your dad didn't know if you could make a living in theater. And, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda turned out pretty well. He did great. But listen, during that same period of time, just to let you know, I wasn't that far away from it. Harry Connick was one of my contemporaries. Patricia Clarkson, Wenton Marcellus is one of my buddies. Brian Bat, All these young folks from New Orleans, which, as you know, is a cauldron for culture and art and music, went on to do pretty wonderful things in their life and you know it's been a lifelong passion of mine and i still love it and and uh, i think it's really well, important I, I and noticed it's been that helpful. Some, some of the roles that you played were uh, don quixote and man of la mancha jesus and jesus christ superstar. it's all been so it's you, all been you, downhill you, you from there i mean think about it you didn't shy away from the big roles <laughs> well you know you had to so, try out and i got cast but I, I was you know i had some chops i was pretty good uh-huh you uh you know, I, I've always been interested in the sons of famous political fathers because you, there you see a, quite a bit of it. You know, Al Gore, Rich Daly, Adlai yeah. Stevenson, uh, Mitt Romney, lots of young, uh, lots of sons who go into politics. Some daughters. Your uh, your sister is one of them. Correct. But uh, it always uh, interests me as to what the challenges are when you have a famous name. And people have expectations of you. Uh, you know, that's a great question. First of all, from the from, I don't know that politics is a whole lot different from medicine or football. I mean, in New Orleans, we're a city of families, so we have the Mannings, got Archie, and you know the rest of the crowd, and they've done pretty well. Yeah, you have the Brennans, you know, in food, they have own all the restaurants here. The Marcellus family. I think people tend to follow, you know, what their parents do. So politics in that regard is not that different. But in the political arena. All of my brothers and sisters, if you ask them, would probably have a different story about what impact my dad in being in politics and being so prominent had on their lives. For me, I remember being a very positive thing. I was always very interested in it and engaged me. For example, the office that we're sitting in right now, I was here when I was in the mayor's office. Um, One of the worst days of my father's administration was when a Vietnam veteran named Mark Essex went on a building that's less than 200 yards from here and put it on fire, and when the police and firemen showed up, he started shooting them off of the ladders. It was the first act of major Mm. domestic terrorism. I actually sat in this office during that time and watched that happen. And so I had always kind of gone around with my dad. I enjoyed it, and I knew kind of in my bones that I wanted to do this because I liked it. Now, I will say, though, he was the mayor during my very formative years from the time I was 10 to 18. Uh, And, of course, people say stupid things to you. 
you know, like if they hated your daddy, they hated you. They never met you. So you knew that you were going to get judged based on what your name was and not what you did. And it did and create. Also presumably, there was an expectation that somehow you got some advantage. Yeah, from uh, no question. No matter what I did, yeah. like if I won a tennis match, or right. if I got a lead in the play, or if I whatever. They, oh, you got that because your daddy was the mayor. And one of the things it did do to me was cause a little bit of um, uh, uncertainty about whether who I was. Did people really like me because of me? Was I really? Can I stand on my own two feet? Like what? What is that? It was a, it was a kind of real deep insecurity. Now it wasn't a, a, a terrible one because my ego is pretty healthy. But I do absolutely remember As thinking by that you were Don Quixote. <laughs> yes, Don and Quixote Jesus. and Jesus Christ. Yes, <laughs> don't forget that. And Che Guevara. <laughs> yeah, Che. I'm still. I, I I'm gonna put him on my resume because I'm still trying to get to Broadway. <laughs> but but I do remember thinking to myself, you know what? I really want to get out of here, and go someplace else. I want to leave the state after to go to college. Mm-hmm. I was the first one in my family to leave the state. Most of my brothers and sisters went to LSU. Then your father LSU followed Tigers. you and joined the cabinet. This really was terrible. <laughs> I, had, I went to Washington, D.C. to get away from him. And President Carter then asked him to be the cabinet. And, and one of my most joyful days of my life is when he came on campus to visit me and somebody said, you're Mitch's dad. I'm like, yes. <laughs> but, but it did take me. It's just interesting enough because I, when, I, when I went to school, nobody really knew who I was. Nobody cared that my dad was in a cabinet and he had a weird name. His name was Moon. And they were like, who are these people from the South? They didn't know anything about me. And I was able to really establish for my, my own self you know what, I actually can stand on my own two feet and I can get someplace on my own and I don't need a name. And it's really about hard work and it's really about just kind of showing up and doing the things. And if you do that, people will give you a fair shot. Uh, but it was a generally very positive experience for me. You ever get the half moon? Thing? All the time. Well, first of all, <laughs> I told you I have eight brothers and sisters, but they used to call my brother. I have one older brother, half moon. They called me quarter moon. <laughs> That's the truth. So... Uh- you sang the impossible dream, and you also had one, which is you ran for mayor a bunch of times, twice, uh, three times actually. Yeah. So in eighty four, uh, in two thousand and 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 what is it? Eighty four, two thousand and yeah. No, eighty four well, is not right. What I are ran, the three I ran times? in ninety four. Ninety four. Right, and I then I ran in two thousand four. Yeah. Against Mayor Nagin, I lost yeah. both of those races. Um, yeah. I actually lost the first race to Mayor Morial, who is now right. the president Another of, of the National guy. Urban League. His father, Dutch Morial, was right. mayor of he New sure Orleans. He sure was. And Mark and I were friends. We went to high school together. So let me ask you this. Um, you, you, you became a state legislator at a very young age. How old were you? I was 28. And then you ran for lieutenant governor, as you pointed out, and you got elected lieutenant yeah. governor twice. What was the difference between um, being an urban politician and being lieutenant governor when you're representing the whole state, and how much of a feel did it give you for sort of the differences between communities? That's a great question because as a legislator, I was a legislator of a of an urban legislative district. It was wholly ensconced in New Orleans, and I knew that district well, but it was a city. But when you represent a southern state, it's mostly rural. Uh, I acclimated to it fairly well, but it was a little bit culturally different because the state is really kind of divided into a number of different areas. It's not just urban and rural, but in, in Louisiana, the interstate I-10 runs right across the bottom of the state. The lower part of the state is heavily Roman Catholic and Acadian, Cajuns, and to kind of a whole different kind of cultural vibe than North Louisiana, which was mostly Baptist. Uh, and that, that took a little while to get used to. I was a little bit nervous about it because there's always this big city antagonism. But the truth of the matter is the people of the state just accepted me really, really well because if you showed up 
and you talk to them and you listen to them, people are very open. And they generally, even if they had a prejudice about you, once they get to know you, assuming that you meet the test, you know, of whatever makes them like you or dislike you, they were, they were pretty good about it. Now, the difference in the jobs was incredible because one was an executive branch job, which is wholly different from being a legislator. I was a legislator with a bunch of young guys who were intent on reforming the state. We did a lot of good work, but I didn't realize till I left the legislature that as a legislator, I'm mostly an advocate. I'm talking about what needs to be done. I'm, I'm advocating what the governor should do. That's different when you get to be the head of the executive branch about having to get it done. Yeah, and lieutenant governors in the South, uh, in in some states, it's almost an honorific position, but yeah, you but had real not, power but in that not role. here. Yeah. In, in Louisiana, I was, uh, of course, in succession to be the governor in the event that anything untoward happened. Um, and, you know, thank God nothing did to either one of our, well, actually the three governors that I served with. Um, but... I also oversaw the Department of Culture, Recreation, and Tourism, and tourism is a massive industry. So I had executive responsibilities. I also sat at the table for all of the major emergencies for the responses. So, Including so Hurricane Katrina. Katrina, Rita, Ike, Gustav, you know, and, and I had right when the BP oil spill hit was when I kind of transitioned into my inauguration as mayor. But I was sitting at the emergency ops table. Now as the mayor of the city, I'm actually sit at the head of that table. So I have been through as many Homeland Security threats as most executives in me, the country. And they've been be, voluminous, I want to I want to talk about that before. I just want to ask you one more question about sure. this urban-rural divide because it really is defining our politics nationally right now. You know, you see— I have a difference of opinion about that, okay, actually. Okay, good. I know that all of the people are—we're doing the easy thing and saying, oh, my God, look at the numbers. All the rural areas voted for Trump and all the urban areas voted for Clinton— you know this, that every election is different because the candidates are different and the times are different, number one. And so the postmortem on them is often too simplistic. I actually happen to think that it's going to change. And I, I think that when we start talking about the necessary connection that exists between rural and urban citizens, for example, the Ave Maria, our amazing grace, sings the same exact way in a rural parish as it does, and when I'm saying parish now, I'm talking about a Catholic church parish, right. in, in North Louisiana as it does in South Louisiana or in a rural parish and in an urban parish. There are uh, chains of goods that flow from rice farms in North Louisiana to the tables of restaurants in uh, South Louisiana. And I think that once we get out of this fit, I think the country's in a fever right now. And, and we will get out of it because fevers always break. And people realize how much how closely connected we are. Some of those ties that have been severed because of the emotions of the last election and because of the current president and how things are working out at the moment will eventually heal and be bound back together. Let me ask you about those uh, moments, those difficult moments, and particularly Katrina, which is so seared in the consciousness of the country. I mean, I think it was not just a tragedy for New Orleans, but it really sort of shocked the consciousness uh, As it should of, have. Of, of the country. Tell me what you remember about uh, about that storm. And oh I know you were out there I was, pulling people, sure. trying to pull people to safety. I, w- I was. It was a, first of all, it was a national catastrophe. At the time, as you may remember, because Speaker Hastert spoke what he thought was his truth most clearly, and he couldn't have been more wrong which was that this happened because there's something wrong with us. <laughs> Basically, you know, uh, 
and the country had not yet had Sandy and, and not yet conceptualized that this was a national threat with climate change and sea rise and all that stuff. I, I, I guess it's cruel to say, but uh, he's not exactly looking back. The guy who should have been judging, but no, no question. I but, understand that. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to be, to be, to be too harsh about his current circumstances, right. but he was the speaker of the house at the time. Yeah, right. And as in that position, which is a, you know, really significant, the speaker of the house opined, yeah. not let's get down there and help, but you know, there's something wrong with those people and they don't live the right way. So they must've gotten hurt or let's just move someplace else, which was not an enlightened view of what had happened, but it, that, that opinion only had to be because there was something wrong with us. Well, I think we've subsequently come to learn with all the ma- massive infrastructure catastrophes we've had, the other storms that we've had, that the whole nation is at risk. And basically, we were the canary in the coal mine as a message to the rest of the country that we need to get our heads right about homeland security and massive environmental threats as well as homeland security as well as terrorism threats. You had been uh, through a lot of storms, as you, as, as, uh, as you mentioned, um, but this one uh, was obviously of a magnitude beyond anybody's imagination. Yeah. What were the most uh, emotionally uh, <laughs> You know, it's, incre- it's crazy draining. that you asked me that because yesterday uh, I uh, – I went to visit my son, who is a counselor at a he's a, he's a public school teacher, and during the summer he helps run a camp for kids from New Orleans. And this big kid walked up to me. He stands about two inches. I'm about five ten, so he was about six feet, and he's big. And he says, "You don't remember me, do you?" I said, "No." He goes, "You helped rescue me during Hurricane Rita, which was the hurricane that was two weeks after Katrina. It was right. really kind of the same seminal event." I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I said, first of all, that was a long time ago, so you must have been five, and now you're 20, and you're huge. And he said, yeah. He said, you were helping evacuate people off of an airport tarmac, patients that had been left behind in nursing homes and hospitals, trach patients, and we were loading them on the C-130s, and the National Guardsmen were trying to separate me and my mama from my grandmother, and you wouldn't let them do that. You made them put us on the same plane because you knew that we wouldn't end up in the same place. And I wanted to thank you for that because my grandmother passed away two weeks later and I was able to mm-hmm. be with her. That that event and those kinds of events played themselves over and over and what over again when we weren't were on the ground. Save? Did you were you exposed yes, to that? Yes, well? I was. And that was really, really hard. You know, um it's hard to really even talk about it because it was such a horrific event. There were people that were in uh what were jails that became makeshift hospitals that did not have access to evacuation. And we had to pick them up, literally, put them in the back of pickup trucks, drive them to places, load them onto helicopters, let the helicopters lift them about five miles onto Interstate 10, which had been closed, and put them in ambulances and hope to get them to hospitals before they expired. And there were a number of people that passed while we were trying to do that. When we were rescuing people, they had people with broken legs. I mean, it was really... It's almost impossible to conceptualize this in America. Civil government for a period of time stopped functioning the way that it was supposed to. And the evacuations were so intense and people were in such harm's way that it was really awful. However, I will hasten to say this. At the darkest time, you also saw the most incredible things that gave you hope that this country was unbelievable, which is that people who you never thought would come to other people's aid just really rallied and did the most incredible things under the most difficult of circumstances. So aside from just the immediacy of the the pain, I got a lot of hope in the recovery of Katrina about the future of the country because you could just see when the chips were really, really down and they were really down. I mean, there was, there was nothing left here. 
the people really did what they needed to do to stand back up and help each other out. You got, uh, you ran for mayor in 2010, and the city really had a period of recovery to go through after, uh, after Katrina, after the oil leak, which I experienced from the White House perspective. You sure were there. And uh, uh, tell me what, what New Orleans was facing when you decided to run for mayor. Actually, I want to take you back to the previous election. When, when Mayor Nagin was having difficulty, lots of people were coming and saying, you got to run, you got to run. You're the only one that can save the city. You have to run. I was a lieutenant governor at the time, and I was really struggling with it. So I went and saw two people. I went and saw my dad. And I said, you know, I'm— This is 2006. Yeah. I said, I'm 45. I said, you know, you give me a lot of advice. I never listen. I said, now I really need you to tell me what to do. And he said, well, explain it to me. And I explained it. And he said, well, what, what are people saying? He goes, you're the only one that can save the city. He goes, well, that's not true. <laughs> He said, there are other people that can do it. And he says, I said, well, what should I do? He goes, I don't have no idea. He goes, but I wish you well, and I hope you make the right decision. Then I went to President <laughs> Clinton, and I flew myself up to New York. And he looked at me, and he said, man, you know, he said, you know, when you become the mayor right after a major storm, it's hard. If you run, you're probably going to win, but the city's going to take some time. Well, I ran, and I lost. Then I kind of put it out of my mind. I was never going to do it again. I was on track to run for governor of the state of Louisiana. Didn't know if that was ever going to happen, but that's kind of, you know, I, le- I had left the city. Um, but the recovery really stalled under Mayor Nagin's last, you know, couple of years. All the philanthropic he organizations. Wound up in prison. He wound up subsequently in prison. But, but even before that happened, the recovery had really just kind of hit the skids. It wasn't going well. Um, nothing was getting rebuilt. Nothing was focused. Nothing was organized. And so, you know, some people came to me and said, you should think about running for mayor again. And I said, I don't, I'm not interested in opening up that wound because I really have always wanted to do this. This, I love this job intensely. But it was too painful for me. I had lost twice. You know what that's like. That's like, yeah. you got to be kidding me. Maybe I can't see myself clearly. Maybe I think I'll look good and I don't look so good. And, you know, maybe somebody's telling you something. But James Carville, actually, who moved here with Mary, came mm-hmm. and said, you know, you can you can win, and you, the city needs you, and you can do the job. And I'm like, ah, I don't really want to. And it was very very late in the in the election process. It was about six weeks before qualifying, when a lot of people just came to me and said, it's just really imperative. And you know, I, I just had to admit to myself that I, I I really that ambition and the desire to really turn the city around was still there. Now, when I got here, the well, city- let me just interrupt you for a second. First of all, we should say James Carville. For those who have lived on another planet, is one of the uh, seminal uh, political strategists of our time, led Bill Clinton to the presidency, yeah. and uh, never lost his roots here. Uh, he, and, he, moved, he and his wife, Mary, moved back here and yeah. raised their two daughters here, and he and a lot of other people just came and started talking to me, and I really didn't want to hear it, to be honest with you. I, I didn't believe it. I, didn't I, I was thinking about other stuff. But... It, it, it occurred to me after doing extensive polling and listening to a lot of people in the city, the question that I had four years before, I remember John King asking me this, do you think you're going to win or lose the race? And I said, well, if the race turns out to be about race as opposed to the city moving forward, I will lose. I said, but, this, the, what's the population? It's rate? about 60, 66% African-American. Right. I said, but, but if the people of the city are ready, if they're really ready, to make dramatic change. I'm kind of a transformational, institutional change agent. And that's what the city needed. I said, if they were ready, and I, because I cannot govern without the consent of the governed. So the people have to be ready. 
if everybody's ready to, to do dramatic stuff, and I felt that, and I felt like I could make a difference, then I would do it. And I got myself into a place where I felt like, you know, that could happen. So I, ran, I run in the race, and it turns out that I win. I get 66% of the vote. But what was so special about the vote to me is that I got an equal number of African-American mm-hmm. votes and an equal number of white votes. That has never, ever happened in the history of this city, and I'm not sure it's happened anywhere. It's because it's mostly coalition politics where you put together 80% right, of white votes and 20% yeah. of black yeah. or vice versa. We've got to take a short break, and we'll be back with Mayor Mitch Landry. So you won this great victory, uh, and you talked about being a transformational figure. Talk about the transformations that have happened in well, New Orleans I, I can tell in the you, last seven years. You've seen with Detroit, and you lived through Chicago, mm-hmm. which was on its back, you know, in 1968. Or right, and then, then you know, and then and in then the then late 80s again. Yeah, what happens to cities when they really get down? I mean, our city was as as close to bankruptcy as a city can get. I could have taken the city into bankruptcy. I had reason to do it. But there are also a lot of good reasons not to do it. But that's how bad it was. And I had to close a $100 million hole, which was 22% of our budget. I cut 22% out of our budget in six months. Now, you know, people who deal in this know that that's a stratospherically high number. That Congress generally is fighting about whether they should cut the growth, not just real cuts. Mm -hmm. And the legislature is doing the same thing. We cut 22% out of our budget. Um, there was no organizational structure in the city. Every different organization was going in 50 million directions. The philanthropic community had left. My police department was under indictment and under threat of consent decree from uh, the civil rights department. The schools weren't working. I mean, nothing was going on. And we began to, with the permission of the city, and this is what's most miraculous about what's happened in the last eight years, it's the people of the city that gave us permission to do hard stuff. Now, you know having been in government, how hard change is. Mm -hmm. So you saw in uh, Chicago the difficulty that Rahm had when he was talking about schools, Mm -hmm. just like closing one school Mm -hmm. or two schools for people that went there and they remember their alma mater and they were the captain of the football team. We've completely reconstructed our entire school system. We're 100% charter in the city of New Orleans right now. We've rebuilt 33 brand-new state-of-the-art schools. We've built... 55 primary health care clinics and three new hospitals. We've built a new airport. We've rebuilt the riverfront. We've completely reconstructed the infrastructure of the city and changed the institutions that actually were responsible for making government work. So before you had a government that was based on who you know, not what you know. It wasn't a competent government. Now this is a government that is a, a redesigned. It's based on a deputy mayor system, which I got from the best mayors in the country at the time. Richie Daly was one of the first people I called. He was a mayor at the time. And I said, what am I going to do? And I talked to Mike Bloomberg. I talked to Mayor Menino in Boston. I talked to uh, Antonio Villaraigosa in Los Angeles. And I said, look, I'm a new mayor. I've been around a while, but I've never done this deal before. What do I do? And Mike Bloomberg told me, hire a good scheduler, right? And, and make sure that you do the hard things first. Richie Daly said, make sure you hire really smart, good people who are smarter than you and faster than you. And then just get after it and make the right decisions and do the right things for the right reasons. And so if you follow those guys, you know, that's what we did. We were able to basically rebuild this city and take it from a descending city to an ascending city. So eight years ago, we were bankrupt. Now we've had balanced our budget eight years in a row. We've had the highest credit rating in the history 
of the city. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates. Um, we still have com- challenges that every major urban city has. One of them has. is crime. That's been no question. Uh, and, and I come from Chicago, so sure. I have great empathy for the challenge that you face. But you've had a real problem with violence uh, in this well, city. You know, Why? What, well, that's a good question. I don't think um, it can be this question can be avoided. I have, since the day that I got in office, been concerned not only about general crime, but specifically young boys killing young boys. Uh, the murder rate in America, in poor African-American communities, in, in my opinion, is a national catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a hard thing for the nation to focus its attention on, and I wanted to focus attention on it. So I put the spotlight on this, and I wanted to make sure that, that people could see it really clearly and it couldn't be hidden anymore, so we really pushed it to the front pages of the paper, which has, has had pod- positive and negative consequences. Positive because people are now really paying attention that every murder matters, whether it's a person of color or not. Um, and New Orleans has historically had a crime rate that's eight to ten times higher than the national average since as long as we can count. And it has been really tough to get to the root because when you're dealing with crime, you got to get on the front end of it, and you got to get on the back end of it, and you need resources. And we're under consent decree, which is really another complicating factor because our police community relations were not really good when I got here. So all of those things make it very difficult to solve that particular problem. And I happen to feel very strongly that the federal government has really walked away in many ways from this problem. Post-September 11th, when we got focused on terrorism, and we should be focused on it, and Homeland Security got created, and we refocused the FBI basically on that. We've basically cut the massive amount of funding that we used to give to local governments for fighting crime. I do think there's an answer to the problem, but it requires more manpower. It certainly requires more investment on the front end in mental health, substance abuse, early childhood education, and it requires more federal, state, and local law enforcement because the other thing that has occurred since September 11th is that neighborhoods – and cities have become the tip of the spear for the fight against terrorism, homeland security, and public safety. So police officers are asked to do more with less, and it's been it's been a real strain for them. You made national news recently. You gave a speech that I, that went viral in a way was crazy. That no uh, mayoral speech I can remember has gone viral. Uh, because it was the end of a several-year battle that you had waged to remove some statues that were prominently displayed here in the city of uh, Confederate uh, figures, including uh, Jefferson Davis, who who, who was uh, hung high above the city uh, and cast a shadow over the city. Um, wh- why did you... Why did you make that fight, and, and uh, mm-hmm. why was it so dramatic? Well, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bigger backstory to it. As I told you just a minute ago, uh, when we started rebuilding the city back in 2010, I asked the city to give us permission to not build the city back the way it was, that Katrina and Rita hadn't caused all of our problems, that when, when we had a chance to rebuild the city, the schools, that we ought to build the city we always wanted to be. And if that was the city we always wanted to be, we had to kind of take a deep dive and ask, well, where did we go wrong? And when did we take a wrong turn? In 1960, the city of New Orleans was bigger than Atlanta and bigger than Houston. And subsequently, they just grew up and dwarfed us. And why was that so? What were the bad decisions that we made politically, spiritually, economically that caused us to become a descending city? And while we were rebuilding the city, as I told you, you know, we started to look 
just from an aesthetic point of view, how does the city look? What, 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 what do we have that adorns our city? We look at the great cities of the world, like Venice and Rome and Paris and all these other cities. And I started looking at our public spaces, and it became pretty evident that in three of our most prominent spaces in the city, I mean, think about whatever city you're in in America right now, your most prominent spaces, we had these Confederate generals that were in places of prominence and reverence. And so as I began to think about our 300th anniversary, and I asked Wenton Marcellus, my friend, to help me curate it, which is next year, he said, I'll do it, but you've got to take the Confederate monuments down. And I said, you lost your damn mind. He says, no, no, have you ever thought about them? Why are they there? Like, who put them and on? One of the most moving, I, I listened to the whole speech, yeah. and one of the most moving pieces of it was your own uh, admission that <laughs> you, you that it never occurred to it you. It never occurred to me. As, as racially sensitive as my family is, it never, no person has ever said to me, those statutes offend me and cripple me. And went and said to me, there are people like Louis Armstrong that left this city because of those statutes. Well, what he was talking about was not just the physical statutes, but the attitude Mm -hmm. of those statutes. And it turns out that those statutes were on property that the city of New Orleans owned. They were in prominent spaces that they were put up by a mayor who had himself been a Confederate soldier to send a singular message to Washington, D.C. that we're not coming. The South is not coming. That, yeah, you might have won the war, but the cause of the Confederacy was a just and right cause. Now, I'm in a city that's 67% African-American. You cannot, be an Afri- you cannot be a person of conscience and walk by those monuments and have friends who are African-American and say, I'm going to force you to walk by those statutes. And yet you did for years. And I, Well, I, 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 wasn't, I just wasn't thinking about it. I didn't know. Nobody had really talked to me about it. But the more I started thinking about it and processing it at a racial reconciliation conference, I simply said, This is to answer your next question. Why did it become such a big deal? I simply uttered the words, I think we should start thinking about taking those monuments down. When I said that, all hell broke loose. And all of a sudden, it became pretty evident that this was a big emotional issue for a lot of people. And this was a deep, raw wound. Now, I was pretty clear from the beginning that the right thing to do would be to take those statutes and put them in a place of remembrance and not in a place of reverence. They're very different things. Because that's what museums are for. But these are in prominent places that actually require people to revere them. And I didn't think that that was the appropriate thing for the city to do. And so I proposed that we took them down. Now, what happened after that is kind of history. A lot of people that didn't want them down who had a lot of power challenged us legally. For two years, there were legal challenges. We went through, I think, seven different court hearings, 13 separate judges. But democratically, we had committee hearings, we had council hearings, we had executive action, we have legislative hearings, we had judicial hearings. So federal, state, local, mm-hmm. legislative, executive, we did what any democratically elected group of people would decide to do. And then when I took them down, I thought it was appropriate to outline for the community. And this speech was really designed just for the people of New Orleans, why we did what we did and why it was in the best interest of the city to do so. It was a huge surprise to me. I can't even begin to describe the word surprise because that's just an understatement that this that speech went viral. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that speech. America was a place where nearly 4,000 of our fellow American citizens were lynched, 540 in Louisiana alone, where our courts enshrined separate but equal, where freedom riders were beaten to a bloody pulp. And it immediately begs the question why there are no slave ship monuments 
No prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks. Nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives of pain, of sacrifice, of shame. All of it happening on the soil of New Orleans. Uh, it struck me as I watched that speech that the reason it was so well-received was because people are hungry for reconciliation. I, th- I think that— And maybe more so now than ever. I, I have a—look, I, I don't want to sound like um, too naive here, but after Katrina, you were asking me about that. I saw in our darkest hours people rise up and reconcile. During, during people's moment of terror and fear, uh, they didn't see color. They didn't see race. They didn't see creed. They didn't see religion. They didn't see anything. They helped each other up. In in our darkest hour, I just kind of saw this incredible positive force come forward. And I absolutely believe that that's possible in our country. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed because I really thought years ago that the first two decades of the 21st century were going to be owned by America lock, stock, and barrel because we had the capacity to do it. And we seem to have shot ourselves in the foot. But that doesn't blind me at all or make me not think that we can't get our mojo back. I think that we will. I think it takes some time to do it, but we we will be able to overcome our differences. And reconciliation is just a part of our national ethos. We're six months into the Trump administration. One would you wouldn't I don't want to be unfair to the man, but you wouldn't call him a a figure of reconciliation. He's he's really sort of he's sort of mined the, our differences uh, to his political He's advantage. Not, I think there are people who think driving differences helps them. Those generally are people that believe in 50% plus one, might is right, you know, view of the world. And I think President Trump is one of those people. He basically told you peace through strength. If that means that I'm stronger than you and can whip your butt, we're going to have peace because you're afraid to fight me. That's kind of what that means. Um, there is no mutual respect in that offer and, and, and receipt reconciliation is a, is a different thing. And if you can think about the country in the, through the long arc of history, President Obama talked a lot about that. Other presidents thought about it. I know we're in the moment now, so everybody feels every tweet. You know, everybody feels every communication that you see on Fox or CNN. Eventually, we will move beyond President Trump. I don't know whether it's going to be in four years or eight years, but historically, it's a blip. There are things happening in the country now as a result of how he and his team will govern. I don't think we can even see what they necessarily are, but they're creating forces. And I do think that politicians in this country have a special obligation to step up and to choose because I think reconciliation and finding common ground is a choice. It's not something that you can get forced into. Now, and some guys think they win by separating. I think we win when we're together. And so just for example, if you take infrastructure, if you take health care, if you take tax reform, and the idea was forgetting about the process of what particular caucus you might be in in mm-hmm. Congress, if you said, could I put some reasonable, thoughtful people in a room, maybe there are 11 governors and 11 mayors and 11 congressmen and 11 senators, lock them in the room and ask them to come out with a package of public policies on immigration, infrastructure, health care, whatever, that 60% of the people in America would agree with poll tested before you even went to Congress, I think you can do it in about three months. If that's what the goal was, if the goal was I want to make sure that I retain my Republican majority or I want to make sure that Democrats control, then that's a whole different process, which is why Washington is so disconnected and why mayors and governors think differently about this. But I feel fairly certain that if you put a bunch of governors and mayors, bipartisan guys in a room and said, you got to come out with an answer to these four problems 
and we're going to poll test it, and 64%, 60% of the people have to agree with it, I think we could do it. So your name has come up. I'm sure you've heard uh, in this uh, uh, sort of cattle call of possibilities for 2020, but your name has, has come up. I know you're term limited uh, as mayor, and making the leap from a mayor's office to the White House is, uh, I don't know, I guess Grover Cleveland was a mayor. <laughs> I don't know what, he, uh, you know, he, he made some other stops. It's never but, happened before. Uh, but uh, is it something that you uh, would rule out, or is it something that you'd consider? Well, the, the answer to the question is I'm not running for president. I have heard my name, and it's really nice. Um, I would say this just as I didn't a, ask you whether you were running. I'm asking whether you would rule out running in the future. Well, you never rule out running anything. You never say never about anything, but I'm not running. Um, and this kind of thing goes on all the time. I would say this to the country about this issue. President Trump has only been in office for six months. It's in everybody's best interest for him to succeed and for him to do well. Starting a presidential race for anybody at this time under any circumstances is ill-advised, but the political jockey and always seems to kind of kind of cause our minds to not think about solving the problems of the day. Um, and my guess is that it'll be a very um, contested election. I'm not sure, just as a political junkie, that President Trump is going to get beat. I don't think, notwithstanding as hopeful as some you know Democratic activists are, that this is just a fait accompli. I mean, he did get elected president, you know, in a, in a very, very Why tough race. Why did he get race. elected president? I think people were frustrated and angry. And I, and I think they wanted to see Washington get something done. And uh, he, he, for whatever people's criticisms of him are, and there are many reasons to be critical of him, he has, as you know, a raw political instinct that not every politician that you've worked for has. He connects with people um, in a way that a lot of other folks don't understand, but he evidently connects, and he connects in such a strong way that it doesn't matter what he does. Now, you were a political consultant at one time, and you would have gone to whoever you were the, working for and said, man, if you do that, you're dead. You'll never come yeah, back no, from and that. He's defied he's those done, he's, de- he's defied well, gravity. Well, and he certified himself as a, not a typical politician yeah, exactly. by, by doing that. But as you point out, people elected him because they... Uh, wanted uh, to get things done. That is not what's happening in Washington Well, I think right that's now. true. It's just hard to, it, it's, it's really hard to see the future. I mean, it unfolds every day. Um, but I, I think that, you know, most of the people in this country want to see something get done. I don't necessarily agree that it's an anti-government thing. It's anti-government in the sense of they think the government's not the one that's functioning, but if government worked well, and for those of us that believe in government, we have a special obligation to make sure that the mousetrap of government is designed well, functions well, and governs with integrity. You now see something interesting happen, I think, in the healthcare debate where some of the folks that voted for Trump, ostensibly to undo Obamacare, who are beginning to understand that, wow, that's going to hurt me too, are saying, well, I didn't really mean that. So it was like the original healthcare um, functions that they had when Kathleen Sebelius and mm-hmm. all the president's people out there, they were coming back saying, man, something's churning out there because the guy with Social Security and Medicare said, you know, keep your hands <laughs> off of them. Yeah, yeah. Keep you know, so I think, I think we, we seem to be confused at the moment. But again, this is where leadership, I think, really matters. And I would really put out a special call to the senators and the congressmen to really rise above party on health care particularly, because if you do this, you can do infrastructure standing on your head and see if we can come up with a bipartisan approach that fixes the obvious flaws in the Affordable Care Act. Now, I'm for the Affordable Care Act. I think it was a, a piece of legislation that succeeded in 
giving health insurance to many, many, many people, there are some flaws in it. And I would just say, correct the flaws. And mm-hmm. let's work through um, bending the cost curve and some of the other things that they're obvious answers to. And if you need mayors and governors and other folks to help, you know, create an environment where Congress can get to yes, I think it would be very beneficial to the country to get a to get a good solution to a very difficult problem. And then you move on to immigration reform, you do infrastructure, you do tax reform, then people are going to start feeling better about the future of the country. The Democratic Party obviously took a great hit in 2016. Very few people expected Hillary Clinton to lose that election. What happened to the Democratic Party and why did she lose? Well, I think she lost because we lost one of our core constituencies was white working class Americans. Um, Donald Trump did a better job of convincing them that he was going to fight for them. Uh, And I don't think that we delivered a message clearly enough to them that that wasn't true. You know, we've always been a party, Democratic Party, that believes in diversity being a strength. But I think they felt shut out. Um, Meaning white working class folks. White working class folks shut out. And I don't know that the message was clearly delivered to them. You had mayors like Mike Duggan, uh, you know. In Detroit. In Detroit. Um, You had other folks from that area, from Ohio, saying, you know, it's not registering. These folks are not, you know, hearing what it is that we're telling them. What's the message? And and the party was never able to deliver it. On the issue of trade, as much as, you know, we think open trade is important, you know, fair trade – evidently was really important too and one of the things that the country's terrible at generally the government and this is republicans and democrats is actually transitioning people from one job to another workforce training lining up uh, jobs that have gone away because of technology or for other areas with the new jobs that exist and yeah. we just don't have a good six million jobs for that. are unfilled now this technology issue is it seems to me huge much you know we lose 80 percent of these jobs now to robots and computers Correct. not to mexico and china well I, look you were asking before about politics and uh, you know scaring people if people are afraid if they're hungry if they're tired they'll believe anything especially if you give sell them a bill of goods about how you're going to be their savior um, and they don't care that much about what the real reason is. They just know that somebody cares. And so when when we get a little bit of distance from them, it will be true that it's not um, the issues that people think. It's mostly technology that's forcing uh, jobs to disappear. Having said that, we still have to come up with an answer of how you help people eat and put food on the table and send their kids to school. Um, because they are going to they are going to support the people they think that are looking out for them. And I would say uh, we have to do one more thing. You have to do all those things. And also, people need a sense of purpose in life. Not enough to say we're going to give them basic guaranteed income. That may be in a component of augmenting people's efforts. Well, I don't, but people I, need to def- people sort of define themselves by what they do. People. That's exactly right. People are not looking for a handout. I mean, people want the dignity of work. They, they want to work themselves, and they want to work in a good job. They want in a job that makes them feel good, uh, and they want to work in a job that gives them some sense of purpose in life. I think that's, that's absolutely true. And most people in this country, black, white, blue, green, Democrat, Republican, they're mostly good people who, if given the opportunity, would reach out and help somebody else out. We can be certainly be put into our corners, which is where we are right now, which is why I say it's going to have to be a choice for us to step out of that comfort zone and to realize it's not the Syrian refugee. It's not the illegal immigrant. You know, we have a lot of issues that we have to solve between and amongst ourselves. And I just have always believed that being open, being inviting, including other people, getting the benefit of the diversity that other folks that that don't look like you, don't think like you, don't live with you, bring to you, creates a better um, America. And 
you know, it, that, that message, I think, resonates with a lot of different people. And whether it's a Democratic Party or the Republican Party going forward, the, pub, the public wants government to work. They don't identify themselves the way the politicians do. They don't see themselves necessarily that way. Now, when elections come around, everybody's got to put their jerseys on. But day to day, folks are going to work. They're coming home. They're taking their kids to the ballpark. They're trying to do the best they can to go to the doctor and get their homework done. But the bottom line issues that you mentioned that go to people's economic well-being and sense of uh, rootedness and and, and, and uh, predict, predictability in terms of what they do and what their future holds um, – those those are pretty central, and the absence of an overriding message that speaks to that seems like a big failure. To me. I think that is. You have to be able to answer the question that people have. And if yeah. that's the question that they have, if you don't answer it, they're going to think, you're not talking to me. So from, from campaign to campaign, those issues change from year to year. The same issues the that affect the economy is usually pretty central, though. Well, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's like the basic one. I mean, jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, can I, can I, Wages. Can I feed my family? Can I send my kids to school? Can I give my kids a better chance at life than I had and that my parents gave me? I think that's pretty universal in this country, and that's a central question that has to be answered. Well, I am a, uh, as a long student of politics and having sat here and spoken with you for an hour, I'm betting that you're not done. That's my bet. But I'm not even going to give you a chance to answer because uh, we we got to go. But, Thank you, uh, Mitch Landrew. Always good to be with it's you. Great to see you, David. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.